What's up, everybody? Hey, listen, if you guys didn't get a chance to listen to our patient advocacy panel with the Canadian research on psychedelics and cannabis, stay tuned because we got a treat for you. We're going to be playing that next. Let me first start out by saying thank you to Podcast Powertrain for helping produce my show. These are the guys you need behind you if you're looking to start your podcast. Also, I'd like to thank Powered by Riverside FM. That's right. Our show is powered by Riverside FM, one of the best platforms to actually have a podcast on. So I'm going to have some links at the end of the show or in the show notes. Check them out. These are the two people that you need to get up, get with to make your podcast top 100. On the Good News Grow 2.0, we're here to let you know the importance of plant-based medicine and psychedelics on mental and physical health. We're bringing you stories of how these medicines have changed lives and can save lives. We want to teach you the healing power of plant-based medicine. This is the Good News Grow 2.0. What's up, good dudes? Welcome back to part two of our patient advocacy panel in psychedelics and cannabis for our first responders. I hope you enjoyed the first part. Let's get on with part two. And actually, Matt, I'm going to keep you in the hot seat a little bit longer because we're going to move into the next question. And Natasha and Rob, I feel like you'll have things to add on this as well. But so if we're talking about working with a vulnerable population like first responders or just a vulnerable population and in general, like end of life patients, what does a culturally competent researcher look like? How is the best way to engage with these populations or what is? Well, I think culturally competent researchers are researchers that are interested in collaborating with large scale associations that represent the target populations of their research subjects. And at the research design stage, because often in public safety, what we're given is yet another project or research that has been uh, developed by a so-called expert that tells us how, how to do business. And we find that there's a significant disconnect between the research community and frontline public safety. And it's simple as recognizing that typical researchers don't have a lot of experience in public safety culture. They're learning about their information through textbooks that, quite frankly, are, are dominated by the medical community and not necessarily embracing the acquisition of a psychological injury approach. So in some ways, what I've seen um, in the public safety mental health research is actually a paradoxical impact where we're identifying high rates of psychological injury, but just saying that more research needs to be funded in this area. And public safety then becomes a Petri dish for exploring further issues around complex trauma, which again, falls under the paradigm of a more of a disordered approach. So what I would like to see is researchers approach research design and ongoing collaboration with the same qualities that they're expecting from their subjects, which is curiosity, humility, and open-mindedness. And when they do that, first responders are more likely to embrace um, participating actively in these research studies and I think it will ethically reduce any paradoxical impact from the results that may come about. Now, I'm speaking about historic research, whereas right now we have, a, in some ways, a blank slate in this industry to do cannabis research and psychedelic research in a very ethical, mindful way. But it's going to have to involve a lot of collaboration with public safety stakeholders 
um, like Gary, like Rob, who have had a history of positions in leadership within their fire departments, state and provincial associations. And Natasha, on your end, um, working more with end-of-life patients, how do you find it's the best way from a research perspective to interact with that population? Yeah, what comes to mind for me is just the fact that so Theracil is providing patients access to psilocybin therapy without the need of accessing a clinical trial, which is very rare in this psychedelic renaissance that we're experiencing. So we have this unique experience to be able to collect observational data from people outside of a clinical trial which I think is a huge opportunity. Um, but the, uh, the difficulties I'm facing is how do I ensure that the patients that we're serving feel as though there's a safe container, feel as though they can reach out to us, that we're not just getting middle-aged, white, you know, high uh, socioeconomic status types of people coming to Theracil for, for help. And then they're not the only ones we're doing observational research on. Um, and part of our goals at Therasil, like you said, Matt, is partnering with organizations who can tell us what they need to feel safe. Um, and we've been really reflecting as a team about how we can't tell people what they need to then have a safe container. They know what they need. And it's consulting the people who would be taking part in the research, consulting the patients, learning from them, being open to what they need. Um, and a big part of that is we're trying to get as many people completing our training as practitioners who are of diverse populations so that they can be there to treat the patients so the patients feel safe to be treated. Um, and so those are our goals in order to have a more like culturally diverse approach to the observational research that, that we're collecting. And I think diversity is so key, particularly in research and particularly working with populations that are already a little bit more at risk. Just knowing that there is a safe container for people to be held in is a, it's a game changer. And I guess to build on that, then, Natasha, from your space, stance in the psychedelic space, how do you feel the process differs for patients like cannabis patients as opposed to psychedelic patients and working with those different compounds? Yeah, um, right now, uh, how it works in Canada is that can't, um, medicinal cannabis is legally accessible for people and easily accessible, where psilocybin therapy is kind of, it sounds like, somewhat similar to Australia. People can kind of have access, but it's still stigmatized. There's a lot of like bottlenecks and issues with people getting access, which includes the Section 56 application process that people are um, taking part in. But when it comes to cannabis, and using it in a in a container for yourself, people are using it to cope with their emotions in the moment, right? And and there isn't as much of a container or um, a, an intention in doing it. Where the psilocybin therapy process, we have a, a clinical process that's more structured when it's done with the support of people who are trained to do this. Right. So it's divided into three aspects. There's the integration aspect and then there is the or the preparatory sorry, preparatory aspect, the treatment day and then the integration aspect. Um, and so people will start to prepare with counselors and they start to build a trusting relationship with them. They start to learn about what it will be like to be in an altered state. They're building an intention or a goal for their treatment day. They're thinking about, like, what are my self-care practices? Should I start breath work now? Should I start journaling? Um, and they're building trust between the therapist and them and building a plan for the day that they're going to consume psilocybin. So there's more structure involved. Um, and then they consume the psilocybin, right? Um, 
in a safe location that they've agreed upon with their sitters and they have two sitters there that are trained the whole time. Um, and they adjust the psilocybin with eye shades and headphones, listening to calming music. And they're encouraged to trust, let go, be open and have that inner experience throughout the session day that they're supported. And then there's structured integration, right? Where people are supported to do more counseling to find meaning about what they experienced on their session day to reinforce those changing neurological pathways that occurred on the session day um, and to just maybe alter their perceptions of reality, alter their relationships, alter their values, alter their self-care. Um, and thinking and preparing for this panel, I was reflecting on the fact that um, it's so important when it comes to psilocybin to have this structure because how altered someone's perception is, it can be a really vulnerable situation. And it's important that they have this safe container so that if they have extreme emotions, if they have, you know, physical manifestations, they're safe and so that they have a positive outcome. But when it comes to cannabis as well, um, I think cannabis could be even more effective if used in this structured framework as well, or just used with it with intention, right? It's like used used with ritual, used with intention, reflecting on why you're using the cannabis, being supported to use the cannabis in conjunction, conjunction with talk therapy. Um, I'm sure that that would be just as beneficial to have that as be, being part of the, the use of this medicine. Thanks, Natasha. And Noah, do you have anything to add there and maybe share a bit about your patient journey with cannabis as well? Uh yeah, so I actually, Natasha, I resonate like you would not believe with what you thought I could see um, something going on there. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, un unfortunately for me, I, you know, uh, in pioneering my own, uh, my own wellness, I never had access to any, like, I literally thank God for the internet because, you know, I, uh, I would say the, the dominant force as to where I've been able to find my wellness is through the internet. I, you know what I, you know, people in this day and age, there's lots of information, what's right, what's wrong, what's true, what's not. But, you know, uh, I put myself out there, I did my own research and I found uh, these compounds that have been shown uh, to, you know, to show s some form of success. Unfortunately for me, I didn't, never had a guide. The only guide that I had was my therapist in conventional talk therapy. Um, and I was left to my own devices to explore uh, both cannabis and uh, psychedelic mushrooms. And let me tell you, not having a guide for something that, you know, is ultimately very powerful um, can lead you down. And, you know, I had to, you know, use the scientific method, so to speak. I had to, you know, make a hypothesis as to what would work and, uh, then apply it. And a lot of times, especially at the beginning, I was left worse off than not. Uh, now, thankfully, you know, through my experience and the collective experience that I have while I was helping other um, uh, veterans with uh, with cannabis, um, you know, there, there very well much is a, a method. And uh, like Natasha said, like, if you go into it with um, you know, intention and there is something that you want to either solve or resolve or, um, you know, cannabis is very good as a temporary crutch to remove and, uh, you know, remove anxiety. But, you know, on the flip side of that is, you know, it could also um, promote anxiety depending on your usage. 
Um, it, uh, it's, it's a tool. And if you respect and use the tool correctly, then you're going to get a result. Um, and to kind of go into my experience, I'd already mentioned about cannabis, you know, the first time it touched my lungs, it was, it literally, like, it literally felt, I didn't even realize this, but it was like someone was sitting on my chest. And as soon as I took, uh, inhaled a joint, it's like that weight was taken off. And that was my very first experience with cannabis through having um, my post-traumatic stress injury. Um, now, the most profound experience, now I might, you know, I might laugh at this. I, I look back at this and I think, you know, it was, it was probably one of the most profound experiences for me personally. And what I had done is, um, you know, I, I looked and I was prepared and I accepted risk to take um, uh, psychedelic mushrooms, psilocybin mushrooms. And uh, I did what was called a hero's dose. So upwards of three to five grams and uh, under no supervision. <laughs> so, that, uh, you know, in the, in the experience, the experience I had was frightening. It was terrifying. Um, but it wasn't maybe, maybe as terrifying as, uh, being in Afghanistan. So I was a combat engineer in Afghanistan. It was my duty to work along with the infantiers um, to detect and dispose of roadside bombs um, while, while employed there. And when I took the, uh, uh, the mushrooms, I, 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 I was terrified. I was in a completely different space. I was, it was as if I was in Afghanistan again. And I remember I was having such a terrible trip. I, you know, through a lot of what I had uh, read and seen online, like, you know, your trip can uh, vary, so to speak. And I, I didn't think that I'd have something, you know, so, so negative and so bad at the time. And I, I had to not only go through that experience by myself and what I did by myself was I ended up on my bathroom floor, rocking myself, saying over and over, I am safe and I am okay. I am safe and I am okay. I am safe. I am okay. Over and over and over again, because I was terrified. I was, ter I was terrified about what was going on in my mind. And after that experience, after I came off the uh, being um, under the influence of this, uh, this drug, I, I still was left with this, this negative feeling. And as I integrated the, the experience, that's, that's when it was, it all came together for me because I was saying over and over that I'm safe. I am safe. Mm -hmm. I was saying over and over that I was okay. And I'm in Canada where I'm okay. I no longer have this, fear of what's going to happen because of my the normal response to an abnormal event i.e you know people shooting at me uh, bombs going off having the fear of of death as i walk down a, a roadway with nothing but a mine detector and the rifle on my back um i am okay and it at the time it was negative it was absolutely one of the worst experiences of my life but I was left, and this is why, you know, Natasha, I resonate with it. And I think that the work that you're, you're doing um, by, you know, giving the intention, 
doing the work, and then integrating that right there. That is how we will use uh, psychedelics as a method to heal people. That one experience, I would say, um, and that was only one experience. That was just one experience over the 10 years that I, I had to go down this road. I think that if I had somebody in, my therapist, um, she's a wonderful, wonderful woman. Um, her analogy is, look, Noah, I've got a map. You're in the driver's seat. You're the one driving. It's, it's up to you how fast we go, how quickly we get there, what turn we take. But I'm going to tell you, you're going off the rails a little bit here. You kind of got to go right, uh, right a little bit. So I needed that roadmap um, for these, these uh, substances, these plant-based medicines. Um, I would have done and progressed way faster than 10 years uh, had I had more guidance. Noah, I would love to just piggyback on you and just touch on kind of summarizing safety just to pull it back to that. So um, I love that you spoke about like this uncomfortable experience that you had and that you had positive results when you integrated it. And I just want to kind of put out there about how, you know, if people have trauma and they have like things that they've been through that are really hard, it's really, really common that they're going to have extremely uncomfortable experiences when on these medicines and that's why the safe container is so important that's why people shouldn't be just doing mushrooms thinking that the study said it's going to heal their depression and going out and doing it because they need to be safe and they need to have that container but those uncomfortable experiences are where the learning happens they are the most important thing it's just they have to be done in a container where you know you're safe and you, unfor- you fortunately could tell yourself, I'm safe. But if you had two trained sitters beside you who could hold your hand and say you're safe, you probably would have felt uncomfortable for half as long and half as severe, but still had the same learning because you were supported in that framework. Um, and that's the frustrating thing about the situation in Canada right now is that people need this medicine, but they don't have access to trained practitioners. They don't have access to physicians who will, who will provide um, a prescription. They don't have safe supply. They're going to underground therapists that aren't trained or they're doing it alone. Um, and so we need psilocybin regulation and we need to move forward so that people can be healing themselves and not be re-traumatizing themselves. Absolutely. Absolutely. Actually trauma is... Trauma. Oh, go ahead, Noah. Sorry, trauma. Sorry, trauma is a very uncomfortable thing. It was a very uncomfortable thing in Afghanistan. And, you know, I knew the work that I needed to do to get better. And it was uncomfortable. And you have to do it. The, yeah. the, alternative, the alternative is on the wrong side of the grass. So, And I think that actually leads into my kind of next question, which I'm going to direct to you, Rob. And shout out to Matt for teaching me this term this week because I didn't know it before. But when we're talking about stoic cervix culture, we're really talking about something that is rather stigmatized, even within civilians as well, but particularly first responders and looking at the stress and mental health responses and the fact that there aren't necessarily frameworks in place to help people even be able to self-diagnose or understand what's happening. So Rob, can you walk us through kind of better ways to assess that within the culture and kind of destigmatizing the idea of mental health and mental health assessment. Sure, Megan. I th- you know, I, instead of saying better, we'll say different because, you know, we're still relatively new in our, in our experience. But as it relates to the stoic culture for public safety personnel, I think there's two fundamental 
um, truths in my world anyway that everyone has to understand. Number one, public safety personnel are the sec- society's security blanket for all the things it cannot see. At the end of the day, as bad as the general civilian public thinks it is, it's 99% of the time a lot worse than that. And the public safety personnel are repetitively uh, exposed to these traumatic events on a daily basis over an extended period of time. And, and you know, municipal police, uh, other services, generally over the course of, of years and or decades. The other thing that everyone has to understand as it relates to Stoic culture is that um, these individuals, these men and women are trained to function over fear. So they are, they are trained, they are bred in their environments to be able to suppress those feelings, to be able to get that job done. So what happens is you have someone that's continuously and repeatedly exposed to these traumas, and then at the same time, trained to not put it out, trained to not um, um, do anything with it until they are, you know, more often than not too far into the red line, which is why we're seeing a lot of the uh, a lot of the post traumatic stress injury uh, cases that we are in our various workers compensation boards, both from you know on both sides of the border, uh, United States and Canada. Uh, the approach that we've taken, Matt and I, and, and our and our collaboration team, is we said, what if we look at it in a different perspective? Um, if if talk therapy is not uh, a good indicator for the stoic culture on getting to the to the root problem prior to the individual, um, you know, hitting that red line. What can we do um, in an upstream mitigation strategy to kind of identify those issues prior to the individual um, getting to that point? So Matt and, Matt and his team and my team and a whole host of collaborators around across the country here in Canada uh, looked at it in a, ma- in a manner of utilizing some uh, innovation technology, biometrics, AI software, and algorithm interfaces to be able to, to, to identify those biometrics in the individual prior to that individual even um, recognizing or coming out to a situation by saying, you know, I have a problem, right? So as a whole, we've looked at it as a comprehensive upstream plan by providing proactive, uh, proactive materials, proactive programming for the entire body, mind, and soul piece to ensure that the individual is, you know, physically active, physically fit, um, has the philosophical basis of purpose and self, and then bringing in the, uh, bringing in the, the psychological, you know, identifiers so that they can recognize triggers, so on and so forth. Um, combining that, bringing in uh, a, a network of culturally competent, uh, occupationally aware clinicians so that in the event that they have to go to uh, a clinician or a mental health provider, those individuals understand that that, that culture that they're coming from. Um, and almost at the center of it is the utilization of the biometrics, digital wearables technology combined with the artificial intelligence software so that medical oversight has the ability to analyze and interject on those biometrics should that public safety personnel uh, be uh, hitting a situation where they need intervention. 
So when we're looking at it that way and we're, we're, you know, we're kind of doing an end route around the stoic culture. Um, you know, it's, it's our belief that, um, through, you know, exhaustive, uh, you know, research on it and, 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 you know, various programming and pilot program, we feel that we're going to be able to at least mitigate, um, or reduce the opportunities for that individual, you know, kind of going through the spectrum of green light, yellow light, red light, so on and so forth. And if they happen to do get into that, that second color or that third color, we will have obviously mitigation strategies in into it. Whether or not it's going to be effective, more effective, better, not better, we're not sure yet, but it is something that um, we believe, you know, specifically um, that it will have an opportunity to uh, reduce injury, reduce um, uh, occupational stress injuries, and provide a better quality of life at the end of the day. Right. Matt, I don't know if you want to jump in on anything there. Uh, you knocked it out of the park, Rob, which doesn't <laughs> surprise me. Oh, well, thank you. Thanks, Mike. <laughs> yeah, thank you, Rob. And I can't wait to hear more about that indicator and see what's going to happen with it. Gary, I can see you look very stoked as well. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I like what they're doing with it, with that, starting with the mental health aspect. What they've done in the United States, they basically studied all the health issues we had with our body from neck down. And so they implemented special systems like biometrics and life scans. And, you know, they, they scan your whole body. They do stress tests. They do physical tests. They do flexibility tests. You sit with a doctor. They check all your orifices. They sit down and say, here, here's some issues. Get a better diet. Do more exercise. But they've completely forgot the fact about the neck up. <laughs> and I'm thinking like, why could we not create something where it does the whole body? I'm great, great, good, neck down, I'm great. But a lot of first responders are great neck down, but neck up, they're all messed up. So if we can actually integrate with what Rob and Matt are, are trying to do in the United States and create more of a full body scan from head to toe, where we actually get to sit every year from when you're hired till you retire and see how the calls affect that young person coming into, into the service, we can save a lot more firefighters from actually getting like, like Matt, like Rob says into the, the yellow or the red, the red light. We can actually create more benefit that way. And I think that's what that, that'll create the data that everybody's looking for. Everybody keeps saying that they want data. Well, we need real life data. We, we can't use data after retired. We can't use data when, when we already have PTSD, we can't work anymore. We need to have a researcher who's willing to do on the job data, create that data and show exactly what is going on. That's the data that'll open a lot more doors instead of us just talking about it and hoping it'll happen. Actually, that leads me into my final question before we open it up to kind of questions from the public, which is we're going to do this kind of popcorn style. But I think each and every one of you has such amazing experience. I'd love to hear kind of a story around a great outcome or a learning in patient advocacy or an experience that you've had that has led to better regulations or that just really lights you up. So whoever wants to take the stage and hop in and break the ice, go for it. I'll jump in because I wanted to mention Bill C-211, which is Canada's national framework on PTSD. It was largely developed uh, with grassroots from public safety. And if we look at the movement towards recognizing psychological injury across worker compensation boards in every province, it's usually public safety that's advocated for that. 
So what I really want to leave this audience with is the idea that by joining forces with public safety sector, we'll be able to drive change in regulation and legislation. Of course, we need hard data, but we also need strong backing from a wide variety of resources where oftentimes public safety has strong existing and sometimes different connections to government than researchers do and public sector um, does as well. So that's why I want to uh, really kind of reiterate what Rob was saying about our company. The reason why we feel like we're going to be successful on changing the mental health landscape is because we're reading the legislation. We're recognizing that public safety needs to join a strong medical team, a strong research team, and under one umbrella, put together proposals for provincial and federal governments to really influence change. We can't do this in silos. This is how we got into this problem in the first place, is researchers doing one thing, public safety doing another, the chief's association doing another thing, and state and provincial and federal governments doing another thing. So we're in a new stage where I believe uh, collaboration is key across all sectors to making change happen. Thanks, Matt. Megan, if I can just if I can just echo on that, um, just yeah. from a personal story, just through our Matt and I's journey on on the notion of collaborating, and I'll I'll speak candidly because you know, um, so we when we started down this path, um, we you know we start it was all just about networks, just like we're doing right now. It was oh well, I know a person over here and I know a person over there, and our web just kind of expanded to the point where we have you know we brought this group together from researchers, doctors, professors, subject matter experts, public safety personnel, political operatives, labor relations specialists, all with the idea of just fixing the issue of public safety personnel, mental health from green light to red light. But the one thing we noticed, and to echo Matt's comments, is everyone was just doing their own thing. And when we finally got everyone in the same room, the overwhelming response was, well, I didn't know you guys wanted to talk to us. And I didn't know you guys wanted to talk to us. And it was just a matter of collaboration and having a conversation. So for everyone on the panel, for everyone watching, if there, if, if there's an interest in, you know, helping or if there's an interest in doing something with, with a public safety personnel group in your area or in your field or in your sector, what my suggestion would be is to talk to the people on the front lines, right? And it's, it's more than just going into the admin office and no disrespect to the admin office, but a lot of those programs that come out are checking a box and it's checking a box from an HR perspective or it's checking a box from uh, a municipal or provincial or federal uh, organization perspective. But if you want to specifically help the people that are on the ground facing the trauma, facing, you know, the day-to-day -day scenarios, are your best resource for what's wrong, how can we fix it, how can we progress, and whether it's mental health, whether it's plant-based solutions, what have you, those are the people that are driving it because those are the people that are driving the legislation on presumptive for post-traumatic stress injuries. They're, they're driving the, the national framework for mental health and public safety personnel. You know, So if the one thing I can offer to everyone is A, collaborate, 
and B, talk to the people in your areas that are actually doing the job in whatever sector they're doing. Thank you. Yeah. And B, do you have anything to add from your end on sort of a patient win? Yeah, definitely. I think the most important takeaway I just sort of want to leave everyone with is is definitely bringing the patient and the lived experience at the forefront when we are advocating for change in government. And, you know, sort of prior to the cannabis industry, you know, I was very, very, I guess, blessed and lucky to have worked with families who have lost their sons and daughters and family members to prescription opioid overdoses here in Australia. And my role was pretty much just as a conduit. Like I just brought these families to the front um, of health ministers and um, I guess regulatory bodies and say, share your stories and hear these people out. Because I think at the end of the day, a lot of the times in government, they are looking at the medical community for advice when they want to actually make these changes. But, you know, occasionally they'll have the token patient on an advisory group, but you can't just have the one patient. It needs to be a few patients so that together they can actually work with the medical community to actually bring that change. So I'm, I'm a huge advocate of always involving the patient and the lived experience at the forefront of all the policies that we, we want to change. Hey, everybody. Thank you for listening to the show. And like I said at the beginning of the show, I'll have some links for you. So if you're interested in starting your podcast yourself, one of the best places to go is podcast powertrain right now they're doing an, an amazing offer for all their course material if you want to actually help get your uh, show ranked all you got to do is go to gooddudesgrow.com forward slash powertrain and you'll get all the information there also if you're looking for a platform not sure which platform to use to record your show on riverside fm is the one we use you can also go to gooddudesgrow.com forward slash Riverside. Check them out and you will not be disappointed. Again, thank you for all listening to the show and we will see you. Well, we'll see you, but. Good Dudes Grow 2.0. Thank you for tuning in. If you're still listening to this, that means you gained something out of this episode. So make sure you share it with a friend, leave a review and subscribe. So you never miss an episode of the Good Dudes Grow 2.0.